just lift this up to you tonight. Lord, we just lift our hands to you, God, as we sing that you are holy. Can we all do that tonight? Can we lift our hands to the Lord? Let's all sing this in one congregation, in one accord. Here we go. We sing holy, holy, holy. you're here tonight. Welcome to Monday Night Live. We've got the band called Sacred Surrender with Bobby Wright. They normally, yeah, give them a hand. They're awesome. They normally play for us many times at our 1050 worship service, and they are a regular at our Celebrate Recovery, so we're real familiar with this band, and we really appreciate their ministry tonight with us. Uh, just to let you know of an opportunity, uh, this band will be uh, doing a CD soon. And if you feel led to be a part of that ministry and helping support them, see Gary Akins about the details on that. What a wonderful opportunity we have tonight to be led in worship 
by Sake of Surrender with Bobby Wright. Let's, let's just turn our attention to the Lord and pray together. Lord, it's amazing the people you use to move our hearts. Father, there have been days when we've gathered together and, and a little child, maybe on the piano or a senior adult, shares and, and we sense your presence. Father, we thank you tonight for, for Bobby Wright and, and the band and we thank you for, for Crawford Luritz and those that are coming tonight to lead us in worship. But Father, we know that whoever... Whoever stands here, whoever serves, that, Lord, what really happens is what you do. So, Lord, as we've just been singing, open the eyes of our hearts tonight to see you, whether we're expressing worship through our words and music or, or whether we're listening with our hearts to your word. Lord, just give us the privilege tonight of of being with dear brothers and sisters as we hunger and thirst and drink from you. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. We are excited that you're here and we we want you to feel welcome. It's going to be a great time of worship tonight. We would invite you to um, hang around after the service. Now, for some of us, hanging around is no problem. You'll hang around and you'll talk until the, the, the ushers come in here and cut the lights off, which is great. It's great. Some of us, it's a little more awkward to talk. And what we're going to have is a time of fellowship afterwards. After our service tonight, you're invited to a watermelon fellowship. You may, with the rain coming in, you might not need water. But, but just want to let you know, we're going to have a watermelon fellowship afterwards. So it's going to be a great opportunity just to hang out with each other, get to know each other. And remember, it's summertime. And so we don't have to just rush. We've got time. We've got time for each other. And I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you'll plan just after the service, just kind of migrate over to our Family Life Center and enjoy a, a great, great time of fellowship. Uh, we will be receiving an offering tonight. Um, I was telling our guests that, you know, we're Baptists. We have a bulletin. And we'll also pass the plate. And just to let you know, what the offering will go to help defray some of the expenses that relate to Monday Night Live. Okay, so that's what that'll go towards. So um, feel free to give as the Lord blesses and, and lead you to do that. Tonight, our guest uh, preacher is Dr. Crawford Luritz. In uh, January of 1964, he committed his life to Jesus Christ, and he's been a follower of Jesus for many years. For many years, he uh, served on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ as a, a national speaker and director and, and leader in ministries. Uh, in 2005, he was called to be the pastor of the, um, now my mind's gone blank, Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. And uh, he's been serving there since 2005. And we're just so thrilled. Um, I'll never forget the most recent time I heard him preach was at my own church. Uh, before I came here, I was the pastor of Heritage Baptist Church in Douglasville. And uh, he came and, and did a revival for us and, and just did a wonderful job. So we're so excited for you to have an opportunity to hear him preach tonight. 
And so in, after the music and the time of worship, uh, Dr. Crawford Ritz will come and, and share the word with us. You know, we also have a custom as a Baptist is having an opportunity to greet one another. So let me invite you just to take an opportunity to meet everyone tonight, make everybody feel welcome. Let's stand to our feet. Let's greet everyone and just make everybody feel a part of this service tonight before we continue in worship. Glory to God. 
Isn't God good? Isn't he good? You know, I was riding around in my work truck today, and I was just thinking of the goodness of God. And I was thinking about, you know, all the wrongs that I've done over my lifetime. And, and even today and yesterday, and, and I'm sure what I'm going to do tomorrow. But I'm so thankful that what Jesus did on the cross paid for it all. Amen? And you know, that, that causes me to just respond in worship, to know that Jesus went to the cross for me and for you and for all this world. There is nothing, anything beautiful than to know that your sins are forgiven. And you know, we're going to do this next song and um, it's just a song about just responding to God in worship, how we're going to stand and we're going to lift our heart to God. And I want to encourage you tonight, if, if you're in here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, please don't leave this place tonight without knowing Him. Amen.
Clap of praise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you've blessed us in so many ways, and you brought us together here tonight for one purpose, and that's to worship you. We pray as this one that you brought here. As he opens your word to us, we just pray that we'll open our hearts and our minds to hear your word and place it in our hearts. That as we live from day to day, that we let others know that we, that we know you as our personal Savior. So we just pray that you'll bless everyone here tonight. Pray that we'll all have a good night's rest. As we bring our offerings, we pray that you'll just use them and bless them and multiply them so we can let many more people know, Father, that you died and that you rose 
and that we might have eternal life. We just believe in you. These things we pray in our holy name. Amen. Grace in his eyes, if his grace 
Father, we just thank you so much for this time of worship, God, that we can come into your house. Lord, I pray that as we uh, partake of the bread, Lord, that we'll be able to understand it and live it outside these four walls. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Well, good evening. Good to see you here this evening. Uh, it's a joy to be here. I'm glad you're not swimming down here the way, like we were up in Atlanta. Has it been raining for the last? Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Well, let me get something out of the way. By the way, I'm Crawford Loritz and just delighted to be here. But let me get something out of the way real quickly. How many of you are sleepy? Just tell the truth. You're sleepy? Okay. Here's, here's what I want you to do for me. The worst thing in the world for a speaker is to look out and see his audience fighting sleep. So don't fight it. I mean, really. Don't fight it. Just go ahead and have a nice sleep. We've got some pews emptied here. You can lay down or whatever. And, uh, you know, j just go ahead and go to sleep. Have a nice sleep. I won't take it personally. I've slept on the best of them, so what goes around comes around. So just help yourself. But don't do one of these two things, okay? If you, if you feel like sleeping, just go ahead and sleep. Give in to it. But don't do like this. That's distracting. Just sleep. And the other one is, please don't do like this, pretending as if you're reading or praying. Now we got character issues. That's lying. So just, you know, just go ahead and sleep. Uh, it is a real, real treat for me to be here with you. And... Uh, to be down here in Tifton. I've driven through here or passed here on I-75 on the way down to Florida a number of times and never had the great privilege of, of being here. And uh, although the time with you is very, very brief, you all have spoiled me already and I'm enjoying this hospitality here. So uh, it is a treat. And it's also just a joy for me to have with me one of our staff from our church, Brandon Howland. Brandon, would you stand up and say hi to the folks? And Brandon is... Uh, I'm, I'm a bit biased, but he is the best senior high pastor in the world. And, uh, and Brandon is also an incredible communicator of the gospel. If you ever get a chance to hear him speak or preach, he's, he's pretty remarkable. It's just good to be able to hang, hang with him. I, uh, I, have a, I really do have an integrity issue. I, in your program, you see where I said that I was going to speak on getting the most out of life and reference the book of Ecclesiastes. 
I very seldom do what I'm about to do. I don't do this often, but driving down here, I had this incredible sense that I was to change the message. And um, I'm prepared to give that message. This is not some kind of like, well, he didn't study, so you know, <laughs> let's go with what works. <laughs> no, honestly, that's all prepared. I can give you the outline for it and everything. But as I drove down here, just increasingly, I've had this burden to go in a different direction. And uh, so if you will forgive me, and hopefully that's not an integrity issue with you, I do feel led uh, to change. And uh, one of the things that's humbling when you preach, you realize that, you know, you're not the fourth member of the Trinity, so only, uh, only God is that consistent. And so I'm going to do that tonight. I'm going to change the message. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so very much for Jesus. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, um, we, we do need to confess that sometimes we sing songs and we, sh uh, we hear the words of these songs and we don't take enough time to marinate in the meaning. And uh, that is an incredibly profound, remarkable thought that you love us so. And God, I pray for that person tonight that's struggling with self-esteem and feelings of rejection and wondering if they're valuable and obsessing over whether or not they bring much worth to life. Will you, will you lift the curtain a bit and may they see the remarkable, incredible, unconditional, sacrificial love of our great God. Now, Father, move us and take us to where we need to be. Oh, God, we pray that you'll speak to us tonight. You know, I don't have anything to say that can change anybody's life. I can't even change my own. But, Lord, we know that you have spoken, and your words are life. Give us life tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to go to the very last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And I just want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 and leave it open there for a while. I want to talk a little bit about an extraordinarily familiar passage of Scripture. If you've been a follower of Jesus longer than a couple of years, undoubtedly you probably have heard a message or two on the text that I want to talk about. And I do want to talk this evening about recapturing our first love. My wife and I, May 22nd, celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary. She is the, she is the greatest thing, her greatest gift next to Jesus in my life. She is a remarkable woman. I, I mean, I married above my head. She is a, an amazing gift. She's the mother of our four kids and the Mimi, grandmother of our eight grandchildren, and she is a gem. I, I wish you could meet her. Uh, I love her, love her to death. But I got to tell you how we met, and I'm going somewhere with this, so hang in there. I got to tell you how we met. Uh, we met in undergraduate school. I, I had broken up with my high school sweetheart. I had gone with this young lady uh, for quite a while, all through high school, and we were in love, L-U-V. It was deep. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, it, 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 just before I went back, about a week or so before I went back to begin my sophomore year in undergrad school, uh, girlfriend kicked me to the curb. Now, can you believe that someone would break up with this? And uh, yeah, yes, I could see it. But at any rate, uh, 
So she broke up, and I was actually, this is true story, I was devastated, devastated. And so I'm, I, I go back to campus, and, um, and I was first day back on campus. I'm in my dorm room. I'm down on my knees. It's a true story. I'm down on my knees praying, God, no more women. <laughs> they mess you up every time. And I'm going to stay focused, just you and me, Jesus, this semester, just the two of us. Not going to be distracted or deterred. I'm not going to date. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to stay focused on Jesus and in your word. And I was getting all carried away with this prayer. And so I got up off my knees and people who know me know that once my mind is made up, I can be fairly focused. And so I, I leave the dorm room. This is a true story. I leave the dorm room. I'm walking down the street to the main administration building. And you know, you know how it is when you make these deep-seated, stalwart, single-minded commitments to Jesus? It's rolling around in my head. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to date. I'm going to stay focused. I'm not, you're, you're hurting. You need to heal. All this other kind of stuff. So I get to the doors of the main administration building again, just rehearsing this prayer. And I throw open the doors, and there at the top of the stairs are these two brown legs. And I said, Lord, what have we here? And uh, I learned a very important lesson. Never make foolish vows. And those legs belong to Karen. And she was new on campus, and my mama taught me to be hospitable to strangers. And so I said, hello, I'm Crawford Loritz, and I think that you're new on campus, and I'm your tour guide. And, uh, and I've been showing her around for 42 years. Hey, he, here's the point. Here's the connection. I hope there is a connection in this. He, here, here's the connection. Here's the connection. Here's the connection. We, we've had a great marriage, and we have a great marriage, and I love her to death, and there's no doubt as to the place that she has in my heart. But my wife and I both have learned that great marriages and great relationships are not kept together or made strong by the feelings of love. They're made strong by the commitment to love. There's a big difference. Big difference. Great marriages... Great relationships are not made strong by just overwhelming feelings of love. They're made strong by commitment to love. And that doesn't mean that they're polar opposites. There are great feelings in the commitment, but the commitment is our priority. It's most important. There is a squishy kind of Christianity that we have in our culture today that is devoid of essence. There's a superficiality about our Christianity that doesn't take us to the distance. We talk about love language and loving God, and yet we so easily get diverted from that because the love is defined by the feelings and not the commitment. That's the reason why when you say I do, you realize that you did. And that frames everything. Why? It benchmarks the relationship. So good or bad, I made a commitment. And that commitment directs the feelings. And it makes the relationship a priority. I promise you I'm getting to the text. But just as marriages can go through a fourfold disintegrating process, so also can I walk in relationship with God. In fact, in fact, 
Often when God wants to get our attention throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, he uses the imagery of marriage, doesn't he? Because marriage is the visible, um, sacred illustration of what intimacy with God is all about. And he uses some shocking, searing language that's more than PG-13 when he talks about Israel's unfaithfulness is going a-whoring after other gods. James talks about committing spiritual adultery. And just as a marriage can disintegrate, so also a walk in relationship with God can disintegrate unless there is great intentionality. Marriages begin, number one, by great feelings of passion. We love. I perform weddings and I look at the couple and I, you know, they don't hear a word that I said and all of this stuff. They go to premarital counseling. Oh, conflict, that's not us. We'll never have conflict. They're just in love. And our feelings will overwhelm things. And, you know, they're there and they, they say I do and, you know, it's just kind of like they can't keep their hands off and I say, Get a room. You're married. Don't do this here. You know, and they, they just, they, they, it's all that stuff, right? And then you wake up, and you know, you got to go to work. You realize you can't kissy face all day, or you might be unemployed. And so you got you to gotta go get a job. You got to go to work. And so, you know, you, the, the passion, and you go to work, and you don't, you don't intend to do this, but the passion kind of like disintegrates a little bit to neglect. You, you forgot this kiss goodbye. Or you didn't call when you said you would. Or you stayed out a little later. Or it's just a number of things. And it, it, life happens. And so the passion disintegrates to a bit of neglect. And unless that is addressed and apologies are made and corrections are made, the neglect can disintegrate to the next level, which is boredom. By that I mean like there's little unresolved conflicts and stuff. This particularly can happen when one is conflict-averse. You don't address issues. And at this point, unless there's some intervention, you start avoiding each other. Pouring yourself into hobbies, working a little later. And at this point, unless there's major intervention, you go from passion, neglect, boredom to number four, departure. One or two things will happen. Regrettably, literally, divorce, separation, that kind of thing. The accumulation of a bunch of stuff that's glowing in the dark right now. And if you would a la carte the menu of issues there, none of which, many of them, did not a big deal in and of themselves, but we let them accumulate. Sadly, what ends up happening, maybe you don't get a divorce, but you renegotiate an image where there's really isolation and departure behind closed doors. That, my friends, happens all the time in our walk in relationship with God. Our walk with Christ is not static. It's something that has to be intentionally dealt with and maintained and focused on. You don't become a great Christian by wanting to be a great Christian. You don't become spiritual by saying, gee, I'm going to be spiritual. You, you don't overcome sin in your life by saying, 
I think I'll overcome sin. There's something more. In Revelation chapter 2, I really believe that this is a prophetic word, and I don't use that term uh, uh, loosely. I really believe that this text is a prophetic word for the state of Christianity in our country today, in most of our churches. As you know, that uh, Jesus dictated seven, seven letters to John as he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And all seven of these letters, by the way, uh, with the exception um, the church at Philadelphia, six of the seven letters carry with it uh, this basic template. He commends them for something, that is Jesus. He condemns them for something, and then he corrects them. So there's commendation, condemnation, and correction. And as I said, the church of Ephesus represents us. He tells John, the pick of his pen, he says, I want you to write the church at Ephesus. I got something to say to them. You look at verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now I want, you, I want you to notice what he commends them for. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, I want you to notice something. You stop reading right there that Jesus basically commends them for two things, two biggies. Now, by the way, this is a standing oath from, the, from Jesus himself. You've got to understand, and you have to feel the context here. Sometimes history dulls the emotional passion of the immediate setting. Now, the church at Ephesus was not one big, huge church, mega church. Uh, my research indicates it was a series of small house churches dotted around the city of Ephesus. And over each one of these house churches was an elder. So you may have had, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, 15 people huddled together into these small adobe-like buildings meeting together. And put yourself in their place. Here you're gathered around in this circular letter. That's what it's called. It's circulated among the churches. This circular letter is being read, and, and the elder stands up and reads this. And from the mouth of the master himself, he's commending us. And in these verses I just read to you, Jesus is commending them for two things. Number one, he's commending them for right behavior. Notice the verbs in verse 2. I don't want to parse all of this out, but it says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Number one, he, he commends them for right behavior. Good for you. Great. By the way, you need to feel the tension here. There's no protracted sin that he's pointing out. Nobody's living in immorality. Nobody's sleeping around. No murderers. No excessive liars. He said, yeah, it's, you're, on balance, you're a squeaky clean joint. A good place. He commends him for right behavior. Secondly, 
He commends them for right beliefs. There's a line, I think uh, the New American Standard Version puts it this way. You have put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. Uh, inherent in that observation is simply this. You, you have a right theological framework. You've got a right understanding of truth. So much so that you're able to judge that which is true or false. So there's no heresy here. There's no false teaching here. If people are not believing some squirrely stuff in this church, they got, they got good biblical, solid, theological framework. Now, you're looking at me the same way that I did a number of years ago when I first read this text, and I'm going, well, yo, dude, what's the problem? Isn't that what you want? You move to a new city, you're looking for a good church, you, you want a place where the people are not morally crazy, they're right behavior, and you want a place that squares with this book. Right beliefs. Uh, hear me. I'm too old to do recreational preaching, so I'm going to be very direct with you. Listen to me. Listen to me. As a pastor and one who's been in ministry for over 40 years, let me tell you something. The most damning, dangerous people to the cause of Christ are good moral Christians who have good sound theology. I'll say it again. No, you didn't mishear me. Potentially the most damning, dangerous people to the cause of Christ are Christians who are basically moral and they have basically a good truth framework. I didn't say that. Jesus says this in his text. I didn't just say that, by the way, for shock value. Listen to what Jesus says. You are sitting in this house, church, next to your husband or wife. The elder stands up and he's reading this letter from the mouth of the master himself, Jesus. And Jesus is given a standing ovation. I want to commend you, church at Ephesus. Right behavior. Right beliefs. But notice what he says here. Six words. Kind of let the air out of the room. But I have this against you. I, I, I got a problem with you. And if you're like me, I mean, I'm sitting there going, what problem? You, you just said I behave right. You just said I believe right. And yet, Jesus says, and I got to tell you, he says this to the church in the United States. He says it to my church. He says the First Baptist Church. 
I got a problem with some of y'all. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with you. My problem is not your morality. No, that was an honest, sincere statement of commendation. My problem is not your theology. No, I meant what I just said. But here's a problem I have. And lazy preachers have butchered this next statement. I want you to pay very close attention. We typically make the greatest error on things that we have heard an awful lot. We've quoted a lot. And this kind of Lazy preachers have butchered this next line because it's a very familiar statement. Listen to what Jesus says. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned. I'll, I'll say it. I like the New American Standard Version a little bit more because it's stronger. He, he says, you have left your first love. The statement of the problem. Statement of the problem. Jesus says, my problem with you is this. My problem with you. My problem with you is this. It is insidious. It is subtle. If you're not careful, you'll ignore it. My problem with you is this. You have left your first love. Typically, we, we say you have lost your first love. No, he didn't say you lost it. There's a huge difference between losing something and leaving something. He says, no, he didn't say you lost it. You didn't lose your first love. He says you have left your first love. And you connect that in context. He is talking about something that has been switched around. You've been distracted by something. And I would argue from the language of the text, he is saying what you have been distracted by is something that is very good but not, not essence. You have been distracted by your behavior. You have been distracted by your beliefs. And you made the dastardly assumption that your behavior and your belief was the same thing as your love relationship with God. Or to put it another way, you have allowed the process to become the destination. The subtleties here, very significant. I'm commending you for your right behavior, and I'm commending you for your right beliefs. But the problem is that you've gotten distracted by your right behavior and right beliefs. You love what you do for Jesus more than you love Jesus. You love what you believe about Jesus more than you love Jesus. You have left your first love. Some years ago, I was... Um, I was doing a number of these Promise Keepers events and stadium events, and um, I'll never forget this. This was before I came to church, and uh, it was one of, those, uh, one of those incredibly wonderfully busy times. And, it, and I, I say that intentionally. It was wonderfully busy because there's a lot of wonderful kingdom things. I was chairing this thing, this television special in Atlanta, an evangelistic television special, and we had... Um, we're flying in some Christian leaders. We were meeting at my office, and I was going to leave from there that day to fly to one of these uh, uh, cities, to one of these stadium events with promise keepers and give the gospel that evening. And, and uh, I, my, my wife would tell you, I am a time freak. I'm very seldom late for anything. Uh, and, but that morning, I was, it, it was uh, uh, something happening. I was running just a little bit late. And so you know how that goes. I'm, I'm rushing around getting my stuff. I've got to get to the office of this meeting, and I've got to get my bags together. And so I get in my car, and I'm backing out of the driveway. And you know where I'm going. So I get in the car, and I'm going, 
what am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? I go down to check. I got the plane ticket. I got this stuff. I got stuff in the meeting. I got stuff in the night. I got my Bible. I got this. I get halfway to my office. And I'm like, oh, man. I left my wallet on the dresser. I didn't lose it. I knew exactly where it was. I'm a little old C. What is that? Obsessive compulsive. Yeah, but, you know, I, I put it in the same place every night next to my money clip on Karen's side of the bed, which is not a good thing, but I put, (laughs) so I knew exactly where it was. I knew exactly where it was. Now hear me, hear me, hear me. In my design, nothing on my agenda, nothing on my schedule was evil. All of this stuff was to advance the kingdom. It was nothing wrong with that stuff. But in my desire, I got, I got so, so excited about this. And running behind the clock, I was excited about the meeting, excited about what's going to take place. All of this, I got distracted, and I ended up driving. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. I ended up driving without identification. The meeting wasn't wrong. My goodness, preaching the gospel to thousands of people in the state, and that wasn't wrong. cops had stopped me, I wouldn't have been on the airplane. He says, you have left your first love. Notice he uses the term first. Now that is not to be taken as a sequential term for first. You know what I mean by that? Uh, Do this and then this, then this, then this, then this. It is the essence term for first. Uh, let me put it another way. It, it is that which, is, which establishes all other priorities. It measures all other priorities. Um, a little illustration. A number of years ago, my wife and I, we used to speak, on, uh, I'm on the board of family life now, but we used to speak at a lot of the Weekend to Remember conferences. And uh, you, you ever say something repeatedly that sounds so good, but when you think about it, you go, you know, what's wrong with that? I used to make this statement in those, in those, in those uh, conferences because I heard everybody else say it. I used to make the statement, you've heard it too. You say, I can tell what's most important to you by looking at your checkbook and your calendar. Now, what ain't wrong, the checkbook is pretty accurate, you know. I mean, you, you either spent the money on what's a priority or you haven't, so that, that's cool. But what, what bugged me was the calendar piece. And I'm a little bit of a slow learner, so... so after saying that for about a year or two, it dawned on me one day as to why I was feeling uncomfortable about saying that. And it's obvious. What you spend the most time on, I promise you there's a connection, what you spend the most time on is not necessarily an accurate reflection of your priorities. Now think with me. Those of y'all that have been married longer than a year, you know exactly what I mean. You, you spend more time at work than you do holding hands and kissing around a dining room table. You, you, you spend more time with your colleagues on your job than you do with your kids at home. Doesn't mean that your kids are unimportant. Doesn't mean that the job is more important. Look, my, my wife, I have two million miles on Delta Airlines alone, which is terrible to say. I mean, that's nothing to brag about. I've traveled a great deal. And yet I got to tell you, I got to tell you, my wife is number one. If she had ever said to me that, honey, there's something going on with our kids or an issue at home, 
I love y'all, but she's number one. What Jesus is saying is, look, 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 look. You, 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 you have lost me in all of your Christian activity. You, that is first for you now. Your Bible study is first. Your Bible study is Jesus. Your meetings, that's Jesus. Your correct theology, yeah, that's, that's Jesus. Where am I? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I will die for the truth of this book. Every word in this book is the written word of God. It's, it's his voice. And, 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 and I will die for the, for the truth of the scriptures. And heresy is, is from the pit of hell. It's all wrong. I got that. I got that. But the purpose of truth is to put the spotlight on Jesus. We don't worship the pages of scripture. We worship God. You have left your first love. He uses the Greek term agape. Now, we make too cute a distinction. I mean, there is a difference between phileo, eros, agape. Those three dominant New Testament words translated for love, phileo, brotherly love, eros, erotic, is sensual love, and agape. Now, just a little aside, be very careful making too much of a distinction between uh, phileo and agape. There's some text of scripture where it's used interchangeably depending on the context. However, the word agape... um, we, we give a little bit of a, of a Walmart definition of that term, but it's far deeper than what we say. We say, well, agape, well, agape, it's God's unconditional love. Well, yeah, but it's a lot more than that. In fact, I don't even think, trying to define agape is akin to trying to define holiness and glory. The human mind, we do not have the accurate vocabulary to be able to, in, a, in the case of holiness, to describe the proactive purity of God. Same thing with glory. I mean, it's one of those terms in which you you can't describe it. You can't be definitive about it. How can we come up with the words to to define the manifest presence of God? And so it is with agape. It is more than just God's unconditional love. It is a pursuant love. It is a love that we know nothing about. It is so foreign to us. It is lodged in the very nature and character of God. And really, 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 when when he says you have left your first love, push the rewind button, go back to Acts chapter 19 when the church was established there at Ephesus. Ephesus was one hellhole. Read the New, uh, New International Standard Bible Encyclopedia's article on Ephesus. I don't want to describe it too much because it's beyond R rated. They had temple prostitutes, male prostitutes. These folks was not saved in your gated, from, from your gated communities, all right? Paul did more miracles in Ephesus than he did in any other place because of the demonic activity. So it's as if Jesus said, oh, look at you now. Look at you now. Not sleeping around anymore. Wonderful. Not cussing anymore. Great, great, great. Not worshiping the goddess... Diana anymore. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Good, good. 
No, your Bible. Yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. Wonderful. Super. Yeah. Yeah. We've got you here. We've got you here. Before you knew the difference between Genesis and Psalms. When you didn't have the power to overcome your temptations. We got you here. Well, he commends them for right behavior, right beliefs. I know it's a heavy word, but there is quotes around condemnation. It's not final. It's not, y'all, I got a problem with you. It's a biggie because it's subtle and insidious. You have left your first love. And what does he tell them to do? <laughs> For the sake of time, I'm not going to go beyond verse 5, but I, 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 I want you to look at the first part of verse 5. Now he corrects them. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works or the deeds you did at first. Jesus says there are three things that I want you to do. See, the, 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 the problem with the church at Ephesus was not that they were doing wrong things. The problem that they had was an alignment problem. You, you, you get me? They had all the right stuff there, but it was out of whack. Uh, Jesus had been pushed to the periphery, and really the new Jesus was the right behavior and the right beliefs. So he says, look, I, I, I kind of got to get you to get this stuff back in order here. So he says, basically, I want you to do things. He says, I want to do three things. I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to redo. Let me say a few words on those things, and we'll go home on that. Number one, he says, I want you to remember, remember. That's a very interesting Greek word. It's a double entendre. It means both to, um, um, uh, to recall as well as to rehearse. Both passive and active. It means to recall as well as to rehearse. It's almost as if he said, hey, stop. 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 Stop it. Stop it. Stop. Pull over. Don't keep going faster in the wrong direction. Stop it. Pull over. Pull over. Pull over. Okay. I want you to look in the rearview mirror of your mind. Go back. Go way, way, way back. Back, back, way back. Way back. I want you to remember how you used to say, how come it's taking me so long to get better? I want you to remember and feel the filth and the dirt and the guilt that you are under. I want you to go back and remember before all this stuff became cultural Christianity to you, before it became a little bit of religious tradition to you, I want you to go back, go back. When you used to ask yourself, what's going to happen to me if I should die? Just go back there. 
You remember that? You remember walking out of that godless temple there in the Agora, the marketplace? You saw this little short dude, my servant, the Apostle Paul, that was talking about this man that died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and he arrested your attention? You remember that? gotten so cute you're beyond that the word also means to rehearse it's as if Jesus said I don't ever want you to forget the power of my deliverance and forgiveness and transformation in your heart and life Dwight L. Moody, the legendary founder of modern mass evangelism, in his later years, he really had a passion to mentor younger uh, leaders and pastors and evangelists. And there in Northampton, Massachusetts, he had this conference, and young budding evangelists would come up there uh, by the scores and just to hang out with Moody. And inevitably, every, you know, each session, somebody would ask him the same question. You would get back to this. By this stage in his life, he, he had preached all over the Western, uh, Western world, uh, obviously Great Britain and the United States in great demand. Huge crowds would come after him. And so they would ask him this question in varying forms, but basically this question. Mr. Moody, what's the secret of your enormous prominence and success as an evangelist? Well, thinking that he was going to give him some little marketing insider strategy or positioning statement or you know public relations kind of hook you say hate to disappoint you young man there's no secret you see before I came to Jesus I worked toward the cross and after I came to Jesus I worked from the cross it's the cross and Moody never ever ever moved from the shadow of the cross. I fear that our Christianity these days has moved from the shadow of the cross. Jesus says, I want you to remember. Secondly, he says, I want you to repent. I, I, I really believe, and I hold this with an open hand, I really believe in this context, this, this also is a bit of a double entendre. The Greek word for repent is the word metanoia, metanoia. Literally, it means a change of mind. I actually think that he means both that as well as the broader implication of repentance that's more than change of mind. It means a total change of direction. There's remorse, there's regret, there's guilt, and there's a turning and a going back toward home. I think he means both in this, in this context. He, he said, literally, I want you to change your mind about how you think about your relationship with me. Just change your mind. Stop it. Stop it. You've left your first love. Well, make me first again. Make, make the outcomes the outcomes. Don't make the outcomes the core. Jesus is the destination. These things are processes. 
important processes. But Jesus is the destination. Then he said, I want you to redo. Now I got to tell you, when I first studied this text, this was the hardest thing for me to figure out what he meant by that. What does he mean? Do again the deeds you did at first. So I went back to Acts 19 and sort of water skiing through Ephesians to try to pick up some clue. And then it dawned on me. I actually think what he's referring to is something tender and emotional. I can't say this from the text specifically, but I believe the emotional feel of the passage would suggest something that is awe-inspiring, deeply personal, and passionate. It's almost as if he's saying, you remember when you gave your heart to me? You didn't know anything. You just knew that you were clean. I can recall when I was 13 and a half years old, I gave my heart to Jesus. This sounds corny, but I tell you, it's the truth. I would sometimes lay awake at night with the Bible on my chest in the dark and tears would roll down my cheeks. I was Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. I didn't know what to say. Thank you for your word. Will you help me understand this? Will you help me? I love you. I love you. My life is uh, pretty busy. Books to write, the radio programs, a wonderful church. Uh, speaking stuff, a lot of stuff going on. My wife and I, we... Uh, we hang out on Wednesday evenings. We, we have small groups. We don't have a traditional Wednesday night prayer meeting. We do have prayer meetings, but it's, it's a little different configuration. I can recall uh, here not too terribly long ago, because of my crazy schedule and some commitments, we had uh, missed a couple of Wednesday nights of hanging out. So I was at the office, and um, I had to go... She called and was talking about something else. She wasn't calling to bust me or anything. She was, we were talking about something else. And so I had to leave from there to go to Chicago. I was going to do some radio stuff. And I said, uh, she said, uh, at the end of the conversation, she said, well, honey, we, we, haven't, we haven't hung out in a while. And I hung up. And I, you know, I, I told, well, before I hung up, I said, well, you know, when I come back from Chicago, we'll go hang out. And, now, we do eat out a lot, okay? I mean, in fact, I told her the other day I'm going to sell the refrigerator and the stove. We're going to keep the microwave. That's my lifeline. But anyway, that's about it. Well, when I told her, I come back, we'll hang out. And I said, oh, that was lame. So I kind of like rushed home and bought her some flowers and changed some things around. And we, we hung out. 
There's an old song, um, some of you might remember the song, it was back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, part of the refrain of the song went something like this. You don't send me flowers anymore. When is the last time you just hung out with Jesus? You didn't ask him for anything. You just hung out with him. When is the last time you just told him? On your knees with an open Bible. How much you love him. Do we love him? You see, that's the key to revival. It's that protection of that intimacy with him. Not with the stuff about him, but with him. That gives us life. Some of us this evening, we may need to confess some sin. We've allowed ourselves just to be good, nice Christians. Ain't doing nothing, but we're good and nice. Nice families, on balance. Is that what you want to be? Is that what you want to be? Just a nice Christian? It is that niceness that is killing the church. Do you want to be passionate for the Savior? A lover of Jesus supremely. It says, I'll do whatever he tells me to do. I'll go wherever he tells me to go. I'll be whatever he wants me to be. Jesus is my life. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. Lord God, we pray in the name of your son that you will shake us, shake us, shake us from a nauseating, sickening complacency. May we never forget the glory of the gospel that came bursting into our hell-bound reality. May every day of our lives we be a living sacrifice to the great lover of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know the Lord has spoken to your heart tonight.